I'd like to say a few words about our ordinary practice, our ordinary life, just as it is, where we're all going home soon. As practice. Before I begin, just um, both Narayan and I are very appreciative of <clears throat> so many of you new people. It seems like all of you, or a lot of you. Typically, we don't have quite so many beginners, people new here, who have really, um, I know it's not been easy, have gone along with the instructions and with the rules and have uh, actually has been quite silent. And of course, I don't fully know what's going on inside of you, but we appreciated the effort. We appreciate the effort that you've all made. <clears throat> and for the old yogis, the patients perhaps, that uh, perhaps they had to hear certain things that they've heard a lot of, uh, maybe and would have preferred to hear other things. It's not so easy to bring, uh, blend a group of people who have never been here with people who have been here a lot. But that's what we had this weekend. Um, What I'd like to do is uh, talk a bit about um, our relationship to practice uh, insofar as uh, it has to do with both the sitting, the formal aspects of practice, sitting and walking, which you're now familiar with, and merely the rest of our life, which is like probably more than 99% that's left. Um, are they the same or different? What I'd like to suggest is that there is absolutely no difference, none whatsoever. <clears throat> but in order to realize that, uh, there's a, a, a sometimes a dramatic attitudinal change that has to happen. Because the tendency is quite naturally to split things into twos all the time. This versus that, up versus down good versus bad, etc. It's endless. And sometimes you've heard uh, terms like uh, practice as non-dual, real practice, matures into what you could call non-dual, where the perfect place to practice is wherever you are. Couldn't be better. And the perfect condition to practice in is your condition. Couldn't be better. Couldn't be more desirable. And the right person is there with the right stuff in the right place because the practice is about being with you, is being you. Uh, In a very nice little book, if you haven't read it, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi says, Zen is really Zen when you are really you. And it's the same for Vipassana, no difference at all. It's another way of saying what we've been saying all weekend. Uh, particularly as we've moved into the uh, this mo- last evening and this morning, the new set of instructions, the high art that we're learning is simple but difficult. And it's how to be one with yourself, how to open to yourself exactly as you are in this moment. The problems that come up typically are 
people get fixated on one or another. Some people get fixated on everyday life, and then that becomes a new ideology, and real practice is just ordinary life, and my practice is just being aware all the time. And very often that covers over a lack of depth. And then the other extreme, that real practice is retreats. Unless you're on retreat, you're not really practicing. And both uh, contribute to a kind of uh, schizophrenia that you don't get hospitalized for. But we split the world up into these two places. Um, And it creates problems. Because the people who like to sit all the time, they just hate it out there. uh, And resist and avoid and hide from that. Because that isn't as spiritual as here. If you're on a retreat, you're very spiritual. But if you're in the supermarket, you're some yo-yo or something. And then it goes the other way as well. The, uh, the daily life adherents somehow see the people who are doing retreats all the time as hiding, avoiding, and the real practices uh, in the supermarket. Well, I think they're both right and they're both wrong. That is, uh, my own experience has been that And I I feel fortunate my first teacher uh, made it very clear. So it's not something I really have to work hard at. It was made so clear that I've never assumed anything other than my whole life is the practice. It's a way of living. It's not really, finally, the methods and all of that become not so important. What's important is an attitude towards living. You're all going home now, and just a few very simple basics. It would be useful to establish a sitting practice, definitely. That would be very, very helpful. Again, you'll have to take into account your own schedule, your own time. Do you have a family with children? Do you not have a family with children? Your work situation? As you know, there are a lot of conditions, and each one of us has a different set, and those conditions change for us as well as time goes on. Not seeing them as obstacles, but as conditions, as um, challenges to find out how to practice how to practice appropriately now, given that my life requires uh, 60 hours of work a week, or given that I now have a new baby, and that's and it takes up my time and my effort. So it's in a sense the particular situation is isn't as important as your ability to stay clear and to work with whatever your situation is, because it is your situation. Uh, I would say if you're drawn to this practice, by all means, come back. Come back a lot. In my experience, these retreats are invaluable, of extraordinary value. And you, you always have to go home. Maybe there are some people who don't go home, but uh, most of us go home. Then what? Uh, then very often people wear the retreats as campaign ribbons. You know, uh, you know. I uh, sat the three-month retreat of September 1988, and some people have a long chest full of uh, awards that they got and retreats. Five months, uh, three months in Thailand. I did a session in Korea. That's just my own set of badges. Uh, in the meantime, life is ticking off, each moment being as real as the one before it and the one after that's to follow. Um, 
So, and each person's solution to this balance will vary. So some of you may want to come back here a lot, some not so often. But I would say whatever the blend is for you, based on your temperament, based on your life situation, um, isn't as important as the attitude that you take towards seeing. Uh, basically, it comes down to, in my opinion, a full and total respect for your life. Seeing that to have a human life is very precious. And it's all about caring for it, taking care, taking care of business. Your, but what is business? For a Vipassana yogi, first and foremost is to take care of the chitta. That's the highest supreme value. The chitta, you can call mind, heart. Really, it uh, doesn't lend itself. There, there is no one English word for it. Uh, when we say mind, <clears throat> as I think Narayan made clear last night, sometime yesterday, in response to a question, it can include a lot. When we, in the West, when you say mind, it often means the psych, uh, psychic level, uh, thoughts and uh, images and so forth. Uh, chitta is much, one usage of it is much more vast. It's all inclusive of all uh, of consciousness, all the different, the content of consciousness and beyond. Uh, and so when we say take care of your mind, let's say, or of your heart or the chitta, <clears throat> if that's misunderstood, it sounds, uh, well, how about people? What about the people in my life? Isn't that self-serving and uh, narcissistic? Just take care of your own mind? The people who are in your life would be blessed if you took care of your mind, of your chit. They would bow down a hundred thousand times if you did. Me too. Because everything issues from that. We put our signature on everything we do all day long. Where do you think it's coming from? And... uh, one kind of criticism of, oh, you Vipassana yogis always going off to retreat, isn't that selfish, always talking about uh, my purification of mind, my enlightenment, my, my, my. Well, it can be. This can be high-class narcissism, no question about it. And it can be a way of escaping and avoiding and not growing up. But that's not correct practice. That's not what it's designed to do. The truth is, to whatever degree you become a bit more sane and compassionate through this practice, that's what you bring to society. You can't give anyone in your life anything more than who you are. And so, on the one hand, this uh, pointing to numero uno, you know, take care of your mind, take care of yourself, is that if you really do that, it's at one and the same time taking care of those people in your life. Because you don't have much, anything more than who you are to offer them. Uh, I don't know if you agree, but anyway, that uh, for for us, those of us who are on this path, more and more you see that the path is learning how to take care of the heart, and you become much more sensitive to see ways in which uh, all of us, how we damage ourselves, how we don't take care of the chitta. Uh, we spend so much time blaming others for our misfortune that we don't realize how much is in our own hands, that our happiness is our own responsibility. And 
We take much better care of our cars and our lawns and even our houses. And now it's, it's moving in in American society. Anyway, now we're starting to take care of our bodies. You know, you go to certain supermar- uh, health food stores now, there's staggering the different herbs and vitamins and minerals and all kinds of new things that I don't even know what to call them that are for different bodily parts and that are guaranteed to make us healthy and live long. Different oils and salves and from different countries, countries I never even heard of. It's overall good. Uh, and I'm hoping that we start, the journey continues. And what about the person who brings the body into the health food store to get all this stuff? What about that? Finally, it will come to that. Um, and as you probably have seen, that our time here together was spent really becoming more sensitive to yourself. How could you miss? Even if you were fighting the retreat the whole time, you could at least see that. I don't think anyone was. Uh, The practice in this sense is about intimacy, finally. It's all about intimacy. Um, Starting with you. We all want intimacy in relationship, and we don't know ourselves. And then we meet someone else who doesn't, they don't know their self, and then we wonder why we have problems with lack of intimacy. So step number one is self-understanding. And here, when you go home, the beauty of the practice uh, is that a life of awareness, a life of attention, a life of mindfulness is really a life of learning. Uh, the curriculum is you. The curriculum is the book to be read is you. It's your book. I mean, you can still keep reading books, but uh, you find that the most essential book is you. And you learn it by those times that we spend quietly looking into ourselves, like at a retreat. If you can set up uh, some time, uh, it would be nice if you can do it twice a day, in the morning, perhaps in the evening, where you uh, set aside some quiet time to just be with yourself, to be with your breath, to experience yourself as you are in silence. It's not really a luxury Many people feel guilty when they do that. Everyone else is, you know, taking out the garbage and running here and running there, and I'm just sitting quietly following my breath. Well, of course, you should take out the garbage too. Uh, but it's an, oppor- it's an opportunity to be with you at least sometime during the day. For most of us, our day fills up with busyness rather quickly. And when the time to to end sitting comes and you get up from your cushion, it's the very same practice that you learned here, that you learn in sitting, that you learn in walking. It's all the same. It's what basically it reduces to the most economical instruction would be attention. Please pay attention. To what? To your life, the context within which you live your life. It's not to just uh, gaze at your navel the situation you're in to be alert, but also inwardly. So you're moving from the situation you find yourself in to also your reaction to that situation. For example, suppose you sit quietly and you find yourself feeling nice and peaceful, very loving, compassionate. You decide you're going to become a Buddhist. You've taken the five precepts. You're reading Thich Nhat Hanh, the whole, you know, everything. You're... Official. 
and then you go into a situation which is maybe a set of parents with all their children or a work situation, complete and utter chaos, where you look around and suddenly your nice, neat little universe, which was easy to um, generate on the cushion, breath is so nice and soft and the mind gets quiet and maybe you have a nice cozy little meditation room with a picture of the Buddha and a picture of Narayan. <laughs> and me. We sell them. They're about $150. It's, it's eight feet tall. Nice and flowers and something from Tibet. And it's very nice. And then you get up, complete and utter chaos. So practice, what, what is practice for us then? Step number one is, of course, to see the chaos socially. But if you don't look at uh, the impact that the chaos is having on your mind, soon you'll be part of that which you're looking at. You will uh, not be looking at the problem. You will be part of the problem because you will have joined in and get gotten swept up in the chaos and be contributing merrily to more confusion in the world and harshness and all the rest of it. So uh, this uh, uh, ability to stay sensitive to your experience, your actual experience from moment to moment, uh, is the main instruction. It's nothing new. We've been saying that all weekend. To stay in touch with the way things actually are, Actually, self-knowledge here uh, means to begin to see how we actually live, capitalized, italics, underscored. How do we actually live our life from moment to moment? Not how do we think we live, not some idealized image of us, but moment to moment. And it can be quite shattering when you start to pay attention. Life is so uh, uncertain and it has a way of shattering all images and all formulas that you may have for how to do things and all ideologies. And the practice is really not about any of those. It's not about beliefs or ideologies, including Buddhist ones. The teachings are designed to encourage us to pay attention and to learn, to develop awareness, to constantly keep refining it so that it gets steadier, stronger, more stable, more subtle. And with that capacity to see, more and more we uh, develop the courage and the interest to turn that capacity to see on what's happening to us. We begin to see our life, our own experience. Whether we're sitting or whether it's in action, whether we're at IMS or on a retreat by yourself or in a situation that has chaos in it. Well, what do you pay attention to? I, I haven't the slightest idea what you should pay attention to. In other words, once you leave your secure, nice meditation room. But I, I'm certain that the situation knows what needs attention. There's a kind of intelligence built into each situation. And when there isn't, sometimes it really is confusing. What do I pay attention to? Then just stop and see that, that you really don't know what the situation is, what's called for. But very often, if not most of the time, it is clear. Let's take a, 
work with very ordinary, simple situations. Uh, and I'm basing this, this is an actual example, but also kinds of questions that come up. And maybe they'll be questions that are on your mind and maybe not. And it, we'll have some chance for, for you to talk. Let's say you're um, chopping the vegetables, getting ready to cook a meal. Uh, but you have a few children, and you're, you've carried over the Vipassana instructions, literally, and you're observing the vegetables, you're seeing their colors and their shapes, and you, you experience the arm chopping and the sound of the knife as it goes through the broccoli, and uh, the water as you rinse it, and you're really right there with the vegetables, and then your children start pulling at you, tugging at you, and have real demands, and they're upset. Some people have a difficult time with that. The reason they do is because they get attached to a certain kind of mindfulness, and as mindfulness itself can become uh, a source of suffering. There isn't enough equanimity, upeka is the Pali term for it, so that what you're with the vegetables and you're wholeheartedly with the vegetables, but now in a split second, the situation has changed. And so if there's no wisdom, there's just samadhi, just concentration. Well, no, they taught me at IMS to really stay with that object. You know, you, uh, But that would be samadhi without any wisdom. Wisdom is needed every step along the, the way, every, from for every breath moment of our life. We can never have too much wisdom. We need wisdom. It's that, it's that in us. We already have it. That's discerning. That has this capacity to tell, to see what's happening, and then to know what to do. So one solution is you let go of, uh, to some degree, of, uh, let's say, cleaning the vegetables, and it's a little bit on automatic pilot as you shift your attention over to your children. You bend over, you listen to them, whatever is necessary. And sometimes what's required is you stop cleaning the vegetables and cutting the vegetables. You stop and you give full attention to the child. At other times, it may be uh, suggesting to the child that they uh, leave the kitchen for a few minutes, that you're almost finished and that you'll talk to them. There's no uh, fixed rule. The equanimity comes in in that you're able to be even-minded towards these objects. If, you're, if you have a hard time letting go of the vegetables and attending to your children, there's clinging there. I'm, I've picked a very simple, ordinary example. Maybe you don't get stuck that way. Some people don't until they take Vipassana. Then they have a new way to suffer. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, doesn't it make sense? You drop the, you know, the, the vegetables and you take care of your children. Then suddenly you do a retreat here and you're, you become incapacitated. <laughs> so we kind of have to get back to just where ordinary folks who never did any sitting and walking are, sometimes. And it's that kind of thing. So throughout the day there's a kind of circumstantial wisdom. Each situation has uh, requirements in it. What's my, what's correct here? Uh, if it's, and it keeps changing. And sometimes, let's say you did eating meditation here. And in this situation, it was uh, wonderful to give your full and undivided attention 
to eating. And I know some of you did that. And, uh, you know, your mind wanders, but you come back and because it's a simplified and protected environment. But what happens if you have a family reunion? <laughs> Would it be appropriate to be, you know, sitting like that? <laughs> and grandma and grandpa there and, you know, Uncle Charlie and Aunt Esther and everyone wants, they haven't seen you in a while, but you're, you know, just uh, noticing the chewing, chewing and the tasting, tasting. It wouldn't. Or you start to feel, oh, I can't really practice mindfulness here. There's too many people. <laughs> I had such nice mindfulness when I was at IMS. I could, it was red hot. And here, I've got a, first someone calls me from one end of the table and someone else says, could you pass this? And, you know, like, and what do you think? What are you doing? How about last summer? What are you doing? Oh, you're getting married? You know, um, it's always going to, again, it's a job of wisdom. How do I practice under these conditions? How do I bring in mindfulness? You always need mindfulness. Being awake is always helpful. Caring for the heart, for the chitta, for the mind, whatever language you like, because that's what's experiencing everything from moment to moment. And when we go asleep, when we go unaware, we hurt ourselves. We hurt ourselves a lot. Sometimes it's quite shocking when you start to do this practice and you really open up to it throughout the, your life, you see that, and it's, uh, it can be painful. Uh, Jack Cornfield told me that uh, many years ago, do you, how many of you have had gotten protective cords? The Tibetans give out these protective cords. If you're new, you know, there's strings that you tie around your, it can be around your wrist or around your, you know. And so the first time he got one from a Tibetan teacher many years ago, he said that, uh, he got the cord and then he said, well, what does this cord protect you from? <laughs> so the teacher said, looked at him as if he was a ninny and he said, from yourself, of course. <laughs> I think that set, filled whole volumes, Dharma volumes. Once you start paying attention, you become a better friend to yourself because you begin to see how you, you do inadvertently, even unknowingly, uh, perpetuate certain states that are suffering, uh, put up with things for years, months, days, lifetimes, for all I know, that need to be taken care of, that need to be attended to. Even when we develop some clarity, we gain some insight, some understanding of what correct action is, and then we go ahead and betray ourselves. We don't do it. We know exactly what has to happen whether it's beginning a relationship or ending a relationship or something in regard to work or friendship. or uh, We betray our understanding. And then the practice is still helpful. You see, you, then you investigate. You look like, clarity of mind has helped me see what correct action is, and yet I don't do it. Why not? And then I feel terrible about that because I keep delaying it and putting up with certain things, and I see I shouldn't. But then you look at that itself. You look at your inability to be true to your understanding. And you see it's fear, perhaps. Or you see that, well, if I do this, they won't like me. Whatever it is, and you work with it, again, using this quality of attention. And as we refine it from practice, you have more to work with. As the mind settles down, becomes more calm, becomes more clear, as we begin to realize 
what a priceless possession peace of mind is. Maybe it's our most valuable possession. We then notice the many ways in which we damage that peace of mind. And positively, we know the, we start to learn the many ways in which we can use that calm and that clarity to help us to live, to enable us to live. Um, okay, I could multiply the examples. They really are endless. They have to do with in relationship, whether that's a, a family or partners or children or at work. Uh, every time somebody enters our presence, every time someone is in our presence, don't we have a reaction? You might say, no, I had no reaction. I gave the person 35 cents. They gave me the Boston Globe. I didn't even see them. If you ask me, what did they look like? I don't know, because I didn't look at them. I didn't care. Oh, that was your reaction. That's how you were in that relationship. It was depersonalized. I'm not saying this in a moralistic sense, just a factual. But typically, when someone's in our presence, we react to them with this feeling, that thought, this sentiment, this image. Practice more and more as a relationship becomes a mirror because it reflects back to us about ourselves so that everyone, everything and everyone that's, that makes up our life keeps teaching us about ourselves if we're willing to learn that. All too often we exteriorize it. We put everything out there and we're endlessly using our energy to correct everything that's going on out there. And of course, that has to be done as well. Now there can be more of an interplay between your inner subjective experience and how that translates into action. The practice is designed to help us be more clear so that the actions that come from us come out of clarity rather than confusion. So that the actions that come from us come out more of kindness rather than cruelty, out of gentleness rather than harshness and so forth. Uh, How can that happen unless we pay attention? And usually, perhaps always, what we find is not, we're not the ideal that we have of ourselves. And nobody is the image that we have of them. And we aren't the image that we have of ourselves. If you start paying attention, all that stuff starts to decompose. And you're left with a raw life, just as it is, just exactly the way it is. I would say if I could, uh, a general suggestion for our practice in daily life, try to, of course, maintain your sitting if you're drawn to this practice. By the way, if you're not, some of you had a hard time this weekend, maybe many of you. And in some cases, that's fine. It, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do this practice. It's just part of, it's growing pains. It's anything new. Think back when you did something else new that at first it may not have been easy. But with time, you learn how to do it. Uh, for some of you, this path is not the right path. Those of you, I'm speaking mainly to the new people who are here for the first time who often are harsh with themselves. You have to find the path with heart. It's got to be the right path for you. Uh, This is the right path for me. That's why I do it. It doesn't mean it's the right path for absolutely every person on the planet. I know that's not true. Attention, awareness, 
I think would be helpful to the whole human race. But there's so many different ways to, to develop that and learn it. This is one way. One that's been tested over time, and it's a good way. Again, not for everyone. But if you conclude that it's reasonable and you want to continue, then I would develop uh, a strong sitting practice. Start gradually. Uh, perhaps make the sittings a little shorter than they are here, because here you have the support of the community. Maybe when you get home, you find that sitting for 45 minutes or an hour is much too much for you, and that the sittings become oppressive and grim, and before you know it, you just stop doing it. So then set a time for yourself that's a little bit beyond your capacity so that you challenge yourself because learning comes from that, but not so much beyond your capacity that you're, you feel oppressed. Come back to IMS from time to time and do some more of this kind of intensive practice, which is, can be great for, for us. And that just leaves, again, we're back to the main thing. When we come home, we have this huge amount of time that is not where we're not going to be sitting and we're not going to be doing the formal walking and so forth. Um, the most concise instruction that, that I can suggest is whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly. Just really do it. Now, that is good practice. When you do that, let's say if you're washing the dishes, wash the dishes. When you're cooking, cook. If you're making love, make love. If you're watching a movie, watch a movie. If you're very tired and very sleepy, as I was, and you have to go to sleep a little during a Dharma talk, like last (laughs) night, then just go to sleep. By the way, if I were more egotistical and narcissistic, I would tell you why I had to, because I was also at the board meeting of IMS all day when I wasn't here, and that I didn't get much sleep coming up here, but because I'm so balanced from the practice, (laughs) I I have no defensiveness. I let go of that one years ago. Everything is just the way it is. When we try to do that, let's say if you can do something wholeheartedly, for some of you who don't know what that's about, is I dozed off a little here, and Apparently, people in the front saw it. I was caught. (laughs) And their image of me was totally destroyed forever. (laughs) Which I would say is good. See, it turns out that all of us on this planet are just people. When you uh, think of what's condensed in that one phrase of doing things wholeheartedly, If you're really doing something fully, then you're fully alive. And the ancients saw that as giving life to life. That is, in that moment when you're doing that, you're enhancing life because you're more alive. And, of course, that you're bringing that to whatever else you're, you're doing and, and to the people who are in that situation. When we're separate, when we're divided, uh, we kill life in a certain way. You're washing the dishes, but you're rehearsing what you're going to say two hours from now or what movie you're going to go to. Again, not to make it rigid. There are no absolute uh, rules in this. There are guidelines. Sometimes you do have to, while you're doing something, there's no other way to do it. You have to kind of set up what you're going to be doing next. And you know you're doing that. You know that you're washing the dishes and 
having to think about what time you have to get the car to go to pick up children or whatever it is. So it's not uh, some kind of a rigid thing at all. Uh, so if you're undivided, if you're at one with what you're doing, you're, you've enhanced life, you've brought life out, you've uh, actualized life. It's just, a, uh, as far as I can tell, the only way to live. It's not particularly Buddhist or anything else. It's human. Uh, and if you try to do this, to live wholeheartedly, to do each thing in its time and place, you'll find that you may have a difficult time doing that because we have lots of views and opinions and preferences. And I hope some of that came out here. Let's say your yogi job. Did anyone get a yogi job that they never would pick on their own? I hope you did. Anyone? Great. What was your job? Do you love it? Do you just love it? Okay, that's that's it. Uh, But how you get there is not just sort of uh, furrowing up your brow and being determined to wash the pots. Uh, They say just be at one with everything, wholehearted, undivided, and you do it like a soldier in combat, which is what it will feel like. Rather, you start washing the pots and you notice your separation, seeing that you're with the pots and the mind is uh, somewhere else. Maybe it's somewhere else because I hate to wash pots. Maybe you had a childhood experience, that whatever it is. Or I'm, I'm too good. I'm, I have a PhD, an MD, and an LLB. I, how did I get this? Don't they know that? I filled it out on the form. How can they give me a job washing pots? I should be helping the director on my free time. <laughs> plan out the future of IMS. That's what I'm good at. You clean out the toilets next time. Pots are too good for you. By the way, in some monasteries, that's exactly how it goes, and it's wonderful training. You rotate through jobs, and some jobs you love and some you hate, and after a while you realize that that's not what's important. The important thing is to uh, stay open, awake, Uh, and bring your fullness of yourself to whatever it is that's there. In order to do that, you you come up against yourself, like the simple example here. But it's it's all over the place. And so, be gentle with yourself, but begin to notice how you're not where you are. Wherever you are, you're somewhere else. I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be fishing. Uh, You know, we have all these bumper stickers. No one wants to be where they are. (laughs) You were at home and all you could think about, I can't wait to get up there for that weekend. Then you get here and find out what's really going on. When will I get home to my, you know, comforts of home, my uh, organic food? Here it's only a percentage of the food is organic. It's not 100% where I'm home. I eat totally organic. We do get complaints like this. Once you try to be considerate, we call it like yogi needs, it opens up a floodgate of demands and desires and uh, obsessions. In Asia, they don't do that. Everyone j- just practice and shut up. You know, <laughs> I don't want to know about your organic garden. I just want you to just, just sit and walk, for goodness sake. And it's harsh, but in some ways it has some benefits. You start coming up against yourself and you either leave well, you start to see how, how many attachments you have and how everything's got to be a certain way or you won't be happy. 
the challenge, I would say a main challenge of our practice is from moment to moment, life is constantly insisting on being a certain way. It's unrelenting. Right? It, it's always exactly this way. Life knows exactly how it's going to be. It's this way. And then the next moment, it's that way and that way. We have our preferences. And so, what is, is something that we're constantly at war with. We're always concerned with what should be or what used to be or why isn't it. The practice is learning to come back to the actuality, the facts of how is it actually? Well, it's this way, right. It's not fatalism or, yeah, just walk right over me, it's this way, and this way is, there's a tank about to drive over me. No, get out of the way. But being with the way it is, step number one is you really know there's a tank coming. So the starting point for our practice is always being in touch with the rawness of the moment, just the unadorned actuality, the way it is, and begin to see how the, how the mind has such a difficult time because it has preferences. I like this. I don't like that. This is too much for me. This is not enough. I'll fix this. I'll explain it away. I'll escape. I'll deny it. And the practice is very gentle but ruthless in its own way, unrelenting. And no matter who teaches these things, I'm sure they're all going to, in their own way, bring you back to this, this breath, this step, this fear, this, until little by little it becomes, why did I, why did I live any other way all these years? You know, which is uh, living in what should be all the time rather than the way it is. It feels like, to me, like living a real life. As you, you live from the way it actually is and then even your actions and even when you want to change things, the changes have some basis in reality. The changes grow out of an and uh, a true situation that you're in touch with, internal and external. So it seems to me a lot of our practice is, is getting to know that, the way it is, and getting to see how we uh, run around it and play games with it and avoid it and so forth. There's, um, in, the, in the Jewish um, spiritual teachings, there's one teaching that has helped me a lot. Uh, I reflect on it very, very often, and it's um, it's another way of saying the same thing. It's from uh, Hasidism, and what is said there is that God assigns each one of us to a little, to some portion of the universe. I think President Clinton has more than a little portion. Okay. So each one of us is assigned some portion of the universe. That's a fact. Yours may just be a candy store corner candy, mom, pa candy, so whatever it is. And our job is to take care of that piece of the universe. Well, you know, that not that what we've been saying? So what is yours? What, what's, what part of the universe are you in charge of? Are you caring for? And whatever it is, that's it. That's your job. In addition to your occupation, you have, a, in a sense, an even deeper job. Okay, anything on your mind about especially um, bringing the practice home, uh, perhaps the last set of instructions where it isn't just being with the breath, but uh, being with the breath plus other things. Please. Is it important uh, or necessary to have a personal relationship with the teacher? Um, it can be helpful. 
we get asked this a lot. There's, there's a lot of variation on that theme. Some traditions are very guru, 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 guru. What is that? A guru. What? A male guru. A male guru is a guru and a gura. Um, and I have seen that work. I've seen where a total devotion to a teacher and a teacher's total devotion to a student, I've seen that work, but it has to be a genuine teacher and a genuine student. And that seems to be rare. I've seen it abused a lot more than I've seen it work. But it's also true of not having a teacher. Then there's some of the, you know, the kind of American independent, uh, you know, kind of out of a Grant Wood picture, you know, no one tells me with a pitchfork, I just do my own thing. Um, where, yeah, you do your own thing, you just follow your own views and opinions. You've been doing that all your life. You, you read one book on, yeah, mindfulness, I don't need any teacher, I stand on my own two feet, I'm independent, and they just, you just take you for your money anyway. Uh, and I've seen that go wrong. Uh, I don't think it's a problem because just keep practicing. I mean, it's not like you can go around starting to uh, hanker after teachers and try to get them, like with a butterfly net. It's a little bit like trying to fall in love. I don't think that works. Um, I, sometimes I've seen it work where a, a person has an extensive, deep, intimate, and prolonged connection with a teacher, and that could be wonderful. If it's, when it's authentic, it's a tremendous help, sure. I have been in that. It's, it can be very, very helpful. It, can, it also, if it goes sour, you become very dependent, and some teachers want to clone you, or you want to be cloned. And eventually that doesn't turn out to be too fulfilling, and it's certainly not what the practice is about. To me, a proper balance, and I would, uh, um, Narayan and I talk these things over, so I think I'm safe, and well, if I'm off, you'll correct me. Um, personally, uh, I think teachers are very helpful. Let's say in this tradition, in this lineage, in the training that I got from some of my teachers, um, the emphasis is on helping you to help yourself. It doesn't mean that you don't give love or support or whatever it takes to help the person, but you always have in your mind that uh, finally, profoundly, and in a very deep way, you're the only one who can help you. I can kind of help you wake up to that, to that fact, and maybe kind of encourage you, but finally it's going to be your job. The Buddha said that. And if the Buddha, the Buddha said, Buddhas only point the way. They can't walk the path for you. So what are we going to do? And that's not a small thing. Uh, and it's, it's like taking pride, I know from the teaching side, I love it when people stand on their own two feet, when they use the practice to develop what's there, what's possible. And then more and more they begin to take responsibility for their own life. It's wonderful. Um, some years ago, I heard Krishnamurti give a talk, and there was, uh, in the middle of it, if you don't know Krishnamurti, his message was extreme independence, no help at all, which I think, uh, in my uh, observation, is unrealistic. It's a very high teaching. No practice, no community, no nothing. Just do it, for goodness sakes. Wake up. There may be some people who can do that. I haven't seen too many. Most of us, we need some some help, some friendship along the way, and we uh, be foolish to not benefit from the accumulated wisdom of centuries in traditions that have 
and just as we've been interested in technology, there is expertise of a very high order that's available, and it's just waiting to be used. So this person raised her hand, got up, and said, Krishnaji, I now under- I've been listening to your teaching for 15 years, and I finally understand what you've been saying. He said, you've been saying that you, c- you absolutely, under no conditions, can help me in any way whatsoever. <laughs> and he said, exactly. <laughs> but look at how many talks and how many books and, and uh, tapes and videos, perhaps, she had to go through. You know, wanting it, wanting it, wanting it, finally understanding. But also, hopefully, listening to what's being said, which is encouragement to really pay attention to yourself, to really see how you actually live. So I would say, in this lineage, which is what I know best, uh, we're different with different people. Sometimes people come who are so hurt, they're not ready to really uh, take a, a strong look at some of their problems, not too much. And so it's just maybe a hug, maybe it's just a warm word or a kind, a kind gesture from time to time. And as they get stronger, then more and more you kind of encourage them to take on more. Uh, the reason I don't think it's a problem, if you continue practicing, uh, you may run into some teacher where there's some, the law of affinity takes over. You really feel a connection. And then you won't even have to ask the question. You'll see that there's some value in working with somebody who's been doing this longer than you have and who's made mistakes and knows what they are and can listen to you and support you. And I'm all for that. I, I myself have been, I've had lots of teachers and I've also spent a lot of time alone. And both are needed and each person's different. Please. I'm sorry, you're what? I'm fairly new to this. Right. Yes, but I would include driving on the interstate. <laughs> I would say especially driving on the interstate. <laughs> Who did? I'm sorry, what? Well, I have to know what he meant because I don't want to... Uh, I think he meant just don't get into the foliage on the interstate. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I, then I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. I would get into the car is what I would get into. Yes. There's a difference between, uh, in a way, what we were doing the first part, where you're mindful of the breath, where the main thing you're being asked to do is to, is to be with the object. And then there's something else, which is, in addition to being mindful of the object or the situation, 
is uh, are you discerning about it? Are you are you seeing what's going on? Or is wisdom has to we have more and more have to be informed by wisdom. Our life has to wisdom has to become our best friend. The chitta has to start listening to what wisdom is and acting on behalf of wisdom. Let me uh, be a little bit more clear. Let's say uh, there's so many different forms. Let's say there's chanting, ceremonies, uh, listening to a tape, let's say music, listening to a tape about what, being a mountain? Or just tapes that have songs about mountains in them. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, some of that, it has a, what effect does that have on you when you listen to it? Very calming. Right, exactly. Okay, now, if you just do that, then it's just relaxation, which is necessary, especially if you're very tense, which many of us are. But there's, but insight meditation, vipassana, is more than calm and relaxation. In fact, if you've been doing this, you know that sometimes it creates stress. It's not just stress reduction, because when you start looking at certain things, you say, oh my God, I thought I'm a non-violent disciple of Gandhi. I'm Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Why didn't my friends tell me this? And there's anguish. So it, it's not just about relaxing, but we spent a lot of time on that aspect. And many things can help you. Listening to nice, that music, uh, certain phrases chanting, can help concentrate and calm the mind. Wisdom is kind of drawing the significance out of what's happening to you, drawing it out of that, but the calmness helps you do that. In other words, once the mind gets calmer, it becomes more clear. So it's, it can see, it's like having a prescription. Let's say you have glasses and finally you have the right prescription. But uh, So calming is nice and it's part of the journey, but from the point of view of this practice, it's, it's, it's not the whole thing. And so if it helps you, some days you come home and let's say you feel very upset, and if that is calming, that's very good. But if you don't look at why you're upset ever, then it won't go away. It's just going to be an alternation between calming and upset, calming and upset. We already know how to do that. You get very upset, you're in the refrigerator. That calms you down, <laughs> takes your mind off the problem. Very upset, let's go to a movie. Very upset, Call a friend. Very upset, dive into a book. So this is not new. And we've offered something else, the breath, which can be misused too. The breath can calm you down, as I hope you know. And if you get fixated on that, then you will deprive yourself of a certain other kind of riches which comes from from learning. And that's what we call wisdom. Does that make sense? Yes. It's a form, if I could put it in another language, it's a form of self-re-education. Where finally you are the teacher and the student. Life is really the teacher. Life is constantly tireless. Never stops teaching. Things are happening. There's something, there's a lesson in everything that's happening. If nothing else, in this practice, impermanence is a very important teaching. We didn't have enough time to give it as much time as it deserves because it opens up into so much. We could just hint at it. Well, life is constantly teaching that everything. Life is impermanent. Life is impermanent. But there aren't enough students. You know, the, the curriculum is unfolding. The course is going on, but no one seems to want to go to class. So here we have to like, hey, life is impermanent. 
you better learn that because it affects everything you're doing. And if you learn it, you can really live a lot better. Yeah, it's learning. But don't throw away the calmness part. That's good too. Again, there's no one answer. There are a number of things that can be useful. And over time, you learn how to take care of yourself best. But, for example, uh, just staying within the, the uh, confines of what we know here. If I sat down and I felt... Um, you know what I, in fact, do almost all the time before I turn to the breath? I, I mentioned it here and in some of the discussion groups. And I certainly would do that if I felt, let's say, very agitated or the mind's all over the place. Instead of going to the breath, step number one is I would acknowledge what my starting point is. Oh, look at that. I don't want to meditate. I hate being here. I feel so restless. I'm ready to punch a hole in the wall. And they want me to sit here and just quietly, what, smile and be with my breath? I don't want to do that. And some, sometimes what happens is if you see what your starting point is, resistance, restlessness, and so forth, uh, somehow the mind appreciates that, just that you know what's going on. And it subsides a wee bit. And then you can turn to the breath. Um, sometimes, especially as you go on in this practice, it maybe you have to look at the problem directly right off with the limited amount of concentration you have because there's no way you can be with the breath. You try. but it doesn't. Or you can use other tools, which we didn't emphasize, but which were brought up by some of you. Counting the breath, for example, if the mind's thinking a lot, it's obsessed, it's got lots of thoughts. Well, and give it some, something to nibble on. Give it a thought, a skillful thought, like counting. Uh, one person mentioned, you know, one, two, three, four, you know, five, or if you get better at it, the ten on the out-breath or on both. It could be in one, out, you know, one, one, two, two, three, three. Um, or a simple in, out, in, out, in, out. Uh, and there are many other uh, phrases in the Thai forest tradition, they would teach us Budo. Budo means the one who knows. It's another name for the Buddha. So on the in-breath, Budo, Budo, Budo. In addition to reminding you that you are the Buddha, uh, it, give, it, it can be helpful. And sure, things like yoga and other, you know, taking a warm bath or just taking a nice walk outside. to how to 
deal with these kinds of people? Well, that's a big one, and you know, I wouldn't be yes, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to say that I can give you a little answer and you're all set now, because that that's a, we all have a lot of that in different forms in life. But a, a few things come to mind. It's good that you're starting to experience more calm. Is that what you said? Inner peace? What was the word you used? Yeah, peacefulness. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Understand that if you keep practicing, that gets deeper. Okay. That is a form of nourishment. Finally, when you can drop into a still mind, when the mind is really still, uh, and let's say even if you're there for a minute or 30 seconds, sometimes you can really feel when you come out of it. It's like having a night's rest. Now, I'm not exaggerating. When the mind gets very still, that means nothing's happening. There's no thinking or very little. Other thoughts are like snowflakes with no potency. You know, they just come through. And you, you learn how to, often when we get into that stillness, we fight it because we're afraid of it or we're not used to it. You learn how to really allow yourself to just bathe in it, to bathe in that stillness. And you begin to see that the stillness is not nothing. Sometimes people say, well, nothing's happening. The truth is it's charged with aliveness, the stillness. And if you can allow yourself to take that on, then you have more energy to bring to uh, those people who are wanting stuff from you in the way in which only you know. Uh, so some of that will come just naturally as your practice develops. You'll have more energy of that kind. But there are other things that can help as well. Some of what is tiring you is that you have expectations of it being other than the way it is. You want them to not want things from you. Perhaps you want them to become meditators and great bodhisattvas and start doing yoga and organic food, and maybe they don't want to do that. Maybe they don't want to... Do you see what I'm getting at? So... Look at your start. Some of the problem is it's complex. Sometimes with friends, you outgrow friends. And it's in my own life, there have been some very painful times where you love a person. You went all through, in my own case, I, there was a group of us. We all went to the University of Chicago together. We were like a family. And then I was the only one who turned in this direction. And little by little, they started being annoyed with me and the Asian bullshit, they would call it. And still doing that Asian crap, you know, and they didn't know, they didn't know what it was. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate